Alright, let's do this. How are you data scientists and engineers? How are you business people? What's up nerds? Did you grasp that thing you were studying? This is Data Science at Home, the podcast about machine learning, artificial intelligence, and more good stuff. I am Francesco, I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes, so grab a cup of coffee and join me as we learn more about the topics we love most. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home Podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the regular office of Leuven in the heart of Europe, Belgium. Today I'm not alone, I'm with um, actually a researcher, if I can say. Um, maybe. Yes, sir. <laughs> Um, no, I still do bioinformatics research. All right. So the researcher, that's what I said. <laughs> yes. So I'm with uh, uh, Laura Harris uh, from Michigan State University. Hi, Laura. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you today? I'm very, very good. And today, in fact, being good is quite a miracle, I must say. Unfortunately, we have to say that. Yeah, still in the pandemic, but uh, slowly coming out. Exactly. Well, I hope everything goes well for everyone out there. Uh, now, uh, the topic of the day is about learning uh, and learning and training are, in fact, two terms that we are very familiar with, especially on this show, uh, you know, learning, training, training, learning, you know what I mean, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, the thing is that learning and training has changed uh, or kind of changed in the era of artificial intelligence. And so before we go into the details of this episode, which I believe is going to be very, very interesting, I would like Laura to introduce herself to the followers of Data Science at Home podcast. Thank you. So my name is Laura Harris. Um, I am the director of training at the Institute for Cyber Enabled Research at Michigan State University, MSU. I have a bachelor's and a master's of science in microbiology. I have a second master's of science in cell and molecular biology. Uh, Both of those are from MSU. So I've been at MSU for a while, Uh, decades actually. I did my PhD in biomedical informatics online through Rutgers University, uh, finished last year. And so uh, very happy to be done with that process and moving into making my research more of a full-time role along with training people on how to use our supercomputer at MSU and basically why they should involve computers, not only in the research that they're doing and whatever they're interested in, but in the classroom in general, I think we need to start computers young. Hmm. So you did this online. There was no pandemic at the time, right? (laughs) Well, I started my PhD back in 2015 and, um, I was one of the first four students to come into this entirely online doctoral program. I never met my mentor in person. Everything was always done through Zoom. Uh, But I did defend about three weeks into the pandemic. But there were no hitches because I was online already. So (laughs) can't go much further than your home. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay. I take that back. There was the surprise of having two young kids running around during the dissertation defense. (laughs) That was not expected. Well, we've seen that many times already with journalists and people on TV as well. (laughs) The the fun part of the pandemic, let's put it like that. For sure. For sure. Yeah, my PhD was done entirely online. 
Um, and at the time I was doing my PhD, I was also a full-time professor over at Davenport University. So there I taught primarily biology courses in SEAT, though I did teach an online bioinformatics class and a data analytics class. Uh, SPSS is fun. Uh, I also uh, am the founder and uh, principal investigator for the Harris Interdisciplinary Research Group. Uh, this group came out of Davenport, and I'm kind of reinventing it as now that I'm new at MSU, but um, they were undergraduate students and nursing majors, couple science majors, and I was leading them in bioinformatic research um, because we didn't have a wet bench at the time. So that was fun because these are people that never programmed before and got to learn some really cool things along the way. <laughs> right. So, well, that's a very interesting career so far. And um, uh, out of curiosity, let's, let's put it personal curiosity. Uh, what does a director of training do in practice? Most of my time these days is curriculum development and workshop, either as a teaching assistant or as a teacher. So, you know, introduction to Linux, introduction to HPCC, um, Python, R, MATLAB, that kind of thing. Um, I also do community outreach. So I collaborate with some people. For example, I've got a little project. I want to bring Excel and maybe Jupyter Notebook into the middle school and high school classrooms. So then that way, as my daughter is learning linear algebra, she's not trying to eyeball her regression equation. She actually knows there's a computer she could go to and get a legit answer. That <laughs> bothered me. Um, I also do bioinformatic research. So right now I'm finishing up a peer review for a paper on SARS looking at gene expression. Um, we're looking at pathway activity uh, from a bioinformatics standpoint with SARS also. Uh, and prior to that, my work was doing uh, antibiotic resistance with MERS, pseudomonas, um, Neisseria gonorrhea, a bunch of fun pathogens. <laughs> Well, indeed, whatever is related to data, I personally find it extremely uh, fun <laughs> to to deal with. <laughs> so uh, speaking I about, agree. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, because it's always nice to find some kind of you know relation or link with the you know the world around us, and uh, and we always find amazing links. At least that's what I found back in the days, and I believe that you you're also in the same uh, in the same boat, right? <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> One of our more interesting findings recently is we identified five interferon-related genes across SARS-1, MERS, and SARS-2. And uh, there is a hot topic in microbiology called interferon therapy. So it's interesting that this is what we found from a computational standpoint, and uh, there's a lot of literature in the clinic that supports if you target the interferons early in the infection process, you can actually have some good. Right. So I was just about to ask, like, how is your activity linked to the world of data and, and machine learning, in fact? Oh, directly related. Um, setting the education piece aside for a second, uh, I do a lot of regression analysis, um, both linear and logistic, more logistic these days because I'm dealing with living organisms and that's just how they grow. Um, K-means, leave one out, cross-validation, that kind of thing. Um, rock curves, 
survival curves, random forest modeling. Uh, the idea really is to try to get um, some sort of a genome or gene expression from cells that have been infected and not infected and just see what those differences are and what the computer can detect that I can't. Cool. And is there a relation between you guys in the, let's say, uh, uh, IT lab and the, the, the guys or the ladies in the wet lab? Like, how do oh, you guys but... verify or validate whatever uh, the computer is spitting, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I actually started on the wet bench side of when I was earlier in my career. So um, I did wet bench work for research and development for the anthrax vaccine, excuse me. I uh, was at Pfizer doing dermatology, preclinical compounds. Um, the pig was our champion am animal black then. Um, I've dealt with mice, rats, it's been fun. Uh, and so basically like my dissertation, for example, what I did was I used the computer to identify certain pathways that were associated with antibiotic resistance in Staphylococcus aureus, MERS, for example. Um, one of the pathways that no one had really looked at before that my computer identified was lysine, which is an amino acid that all cells need and some can produce. So what I did to wrap up my dissertation was go back to the wet bench and do what's called a disk diffusion method. So I streaked bacteria all over the plate. I put antibiotic disks on and then I put on a layer of lysine and compared it to a plate that had no lysine. Compare how close the bacteria are able to grow to the disc. If it's close to the disc, it's right. resistant. Further away from the disc, it's dying and it's sensitive. And I did see a change then in what they call the zone of inhibition, the amount of growth around the disc, lysine plates and my non-lysine plates, which then can give a wet bench validation for what my computer was seeing that lysine is involved in some way. Now, of course, more wet bench work will have to go into figuring out in what way and what yeah. could we do about it, but I'll figure out other programs <laughs> and, to and help And is this that. software usually custom built or is it somewhere, uh, you know, published somewhere? Is it open source? Do you guys release it as open source? Um, 50-50. So I am very Tesla in my way of thinking. So um, I like things that are open source. I believe information should be freely exchanged. I don't like hoarding intellectual property. So anything that I have written, I do freely share. But you need to keep in mind that I'm not a programmer by trade. I'm a microbiologist. And so right. with that said, I don't write the best programs and typically will use things like gene set enrichment analysis desktop version that's already available by Broad Institute or um, common websites like uh, Promisomal 3D for my multi-sequence uh, alignments. Uh, if I can use another program, I will. Um, but if I can't find one, like my leave one out cross-validation, I will attempt to write it myself. Sure. Makes sense. Well, this is this is impressive. I mean, I, I I'm always you know of your uh, current of you know way of thinking like uh, this type of things, especially when it comes to um, you know uh, life sciences. It's always good to have the open source version or the most open uh, way to to let people contribute without surprises or without proprietary aspects of whatever you you build, right? 
uh, it it improves it imp it increases mm -hmm. the, the the pace of of innovation and uh, and research for sure. I mean that's proven uh, in the years. Uh, Laura, let me switch the conversation towards training and learning as the title of this episode. So I would like to refer more to the fact that, uh, in my opinion, uh, with the you know the advent of current machine learning technology, something might have changed in the training uh, techniques or you know ways uh, that people are trained nowadays uh, what, what what do you think about that sadly i don't think much has changed i mm. don't see very many people fluent in a lot of the machine learning lingo or even what they mean um, for example i never even heard of k-means or leave one out cross-validation until probably fourth year into my PhD. So I can hmm. pretty well promise that a good majority of the microbiologists and life scientists out there don't know those kind of machine learning technologies. And I think that's part of why I'm here and why I'm so excited as the director of training at MSU is I get to go to all of the researchers, not just at Michigan State, but eventually outside of the university, uh, other universities, um, other collaborations with corporations, that sort of thing, and really get people that have no experience in computers to understand why they need to learn machine learning techniques, how these techniques can help them improve their research, make it more robust, more reproducible, for example, uh, and more efficient. I mean, we're all short on time, but if I could automate something, more power to me and to everybody else. Of course. So you are saying that uh, even more cross-pollination uh, is, is, is required nowadays, even more. Yes, we need more interdisciplinary approaches. Uh, one of the things that I've been doing recently at MSU is going to all the different departments. So going to the humanities, going to the arts, going to the social sciences, and asking what is your research? What are you doing? And I was shocked at mm. some of the things they said about you know, the art people are taking pictures drawn by an artist over time and then using digital imaging comparisons to try to figure out you know, what was going on with the artist at whatever point during his life. And then collaborating with the psychologist to say, well, wait a second, if a certain brushstroke goes a certain way, does that mean something about his mood or his health or what have you? And as a biologist, I was blown away that you could use computers to do that well, I guess if you're using it for <laughs> facial recognition, why not? <laughs> yeah, that's the biggest misunderstanding, I think. Like uh, a lot of people, especially those who are not, uh, I, I call them non-technical people. They're actually very technical people. They're just not technical from, in my field. <laughs> but biologists <laughs> are technical people, just in a, in a different field than mine. Um, but essentially what they see, I mean, at least what I've found um, speaking to, to the people around me is that when it comes to AI, machine learning and these fancy techniques, deep learning especially, they always relate that you know theory and, and, and even practical algorithms to indeed face recognition, uh, uh, sound synthesis or recognizing cars or, or, or autonomous vehicles and stuff like that. And they, they mm -hmm. probably miss the connection between 
AI as a computational tool and the, the myriad of problems that indeed that computational tool can solve because uh, you know we have to bear in mind that that's um, applied mathematics in fact it's nothing more than that right definitely um and i think that's going to expand as people understand more what an ai can do um i've had people in my career that literally have put their feet on a computer box and called it a glorified foot warmer so we <laughs> we've come a long way but we still have a bit to go um where, where, where these people did these people go to college yeah, but they were kind of on the way out when I was on the way in, if you know what I mean. Because I, I know a guy who says that colleges are pointless, so maybe these people should be somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, but that guy also employs quite a few people that went to college to get his rockets to Mars, so there's that. <laughs> oh, I know someone who said that. But, <laughs> but anyway, so we're talking about a guy, a guy, I would say the guy. Uh, the guy is actually Elon Musk. Uh, who said a, a number of times already uh, that, you know, we can learn anything from home uh, and, you know, even a more extreme than that, that colleges are pointless. Um, now, I'm not really sure he said that, you know, but definitely use, use the synonym of pointless, uh, which, you know, it really hit me like a ton of brick. <laughs> What's your opinion on that, Laura? Well, he does have a point that you can learn almost, I don't like absolutes, almost anything on the internet. I learned Python through a Coursera course. And I did that because I didn't have access to a wet bench at the time, but I still wanted to get involved in research. So after going through Coursera, learning a few things about Python, I learned about my PhD program and I did my PhD program entirely online, as you heard earlier pandemic and all. <laughs> the trick then is that, yeah, I did it all online, but I still got a stamp from Rutgers that says that I have a PhD in biomedical informatics. And the fact that I got that stamp matters because people now take me way more seriously than they did prior to me getting that stamp. And frankly, I wouldn't be the director of training at MSU if I didn't have that stamp. Um, with that said though, you know, I, I can learn surgery or I can learn dissection things online. There's plenty of software out there. Um, McGraw-Hill and a few others have actually put together things where you can go and virtually dissect things as if you were actually in the lab. Uh, virtual reality goggles to attend classrooms, for example. A lot of really cool software for learning things. But I also want the surgeon that's working on me to have worked on an actual person before doing surgery on me, not in a virtual yeah. world. And I'd like that person to preferably have done surgery on somebody else under the guidance of people that are certified to teach them how to do surgery on people. Um, let's not go, you know, murder, psycho, hack job stuff. Um, but, you know, I think that's really where colleges are very important and need to be a major part in our society and educating people. Yeah, I cannot agree more. There are also fields um, of research, but also where people do indeed practice, think about wet labs, but also 
uh, high performance computing uh, you know when can you do these things at home um, or uh, very sophisticated hardware uh, that only colleges or in, you know institutional uh, um, institutions can allow or can can afford uh, and can allow people to use um, so this is and not only that also of course the people involved in the in the teaching experience um, that's what I personally find unique and uh, probably unreplaceable um, you know Coursera is nice I've used that a number of times as well uh, but I have to admit that I it was easy and nice because I went to academia before so you know I was not I, I was not starting from scratch I had a method wired in my head uh, of how to do research of how to uh, you know at least search for the things that I might need or very likely I need for my uh, for my task uh, so that's where i think uh, you know there was no coursera uh, when i learned these things <laughs> <laughs> so we the, it's what i called uh, from from a um, statistical point of view there might be a confounding factor the mm. fact that coursera is out people learn uh, and usually the people who learn are the people who already went to academia and there might be a confounding factor that you're ignoring there, the fact that they already went to academia, right? Yeah. So, and sometimes we ignore that. So, you know, my personal opinion on Elon Musk is that he's ignoring exactly that, that part. So he wants to skip uh, to the next step without, you know, paying the fees. <laughs> yeah, some people can do that. <laughs> oh, for sure he can. <laughs> All right, Laura, I would like to be now to launch a provocation out there you know sure. me <laughs> get me into so, trouble <laughs> let's get into trouble I mean, <laughs> after all you are still in academia i'm not <laughs> i'm not I'm tenure kidding. so let's see I'm how kidding. this goes <laughs> no I, i'm referring to the uh, to the length of academic papers for example or to the huh. acceptance rate of academics paper uh, papers out there uh, sometimes these things are kind of correlated um I've seen at least uh, best of my of my experience. I've seen uh, some papers that were really, you know, content-wise that they, they didn't really deserve that much attention. They really didn't deserve to be in the top uh, n uh, uh, rank, but they were still correlated to the fact that you know they were accepted because they were long enough, or they were scientific enough, or they were using an accepted jargon accepted by the scientific community. Uh, so my question to you is, what happened to academic research in the era of AI? Well, considering the fact that on a regular basis, I deal with an insane number of researchers, I don't think that anything really has, you know, air quote, happened to academic research. Uh, with that said, a bit has changed regarding publication, for example. Um, I've written a few papers, uh, some peer-reviewed. I mentioned we're still going through the process on some of my papers. Uh, I'm also a peer reviewer, for example, for the Journal of Microbiology and Biology Education through the American Society of Microbiology. So one thing that I notice with papers, for example, is if a paper comes to me and it's short, chances are I'm going to have questions about that paper. And the 
people writing the paper then have to address my questions, which usually leads to lengthening the manuscript. Now, lengthening the manuscript to improve the content and give more detail, or in some of my cases, further analyses, uh, is good for the paper, and I would think good for the readers in general. I'll give a quick example. Uh, one of the comments that I recently got on my gene expression SARS paper was you looked at SARS-1, what about MERS and SARS-2? Which is something that I had already thought of, but I thought I would make a second paper. They wanted it as one. <laughs> it strengthened the paper, but then it also added a good three, five pages to it to add those additional right. analyses. Um, so, you know, shorter isn't always sweeter that way. Um, and some of the older papers, so, you know, you look back in the papers from the 80s or even the 50s, and they were oh, yeah. short, sweet, completely lacking detail. I mean, it's almost scary that oh, they, yeah. <laughs> they published that. Um, so just things to consider. Um, there's also paper publication costs. So everything costs money. There's a page fee, there's editor fees. Um, they don't pay the peer reviewers, that's good or bad. But anyway. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. yeah, I got that. But there is a thought <laughs> that you wanna keep everything as short as possible to reduce publication costs uh, that might be coming out of your own grant, for example. Right. Well, one thing that happened for, uh, you know, in the publication, well, not, not in the publication um, field, more in the in academic research. One thing that happened mm -hmm. for sure was kind of a, uh, a switch towards, uh, you know, research labs at large corporations. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen kind of a migration of, uh, at least in my field, uh, computer science or applied uh, mathematics and statistics, applied to commercial projects and usually these commercial pro projects funded by uh, small and large corporations right so all the work that was usually right. was usually done by um, you know researchers or phd students at universities is now done in uh, the ai research lab at uh, acme.inc right so <laughs> is this a good sign is it a bad sign what's going on there I think the more research, the better. I don't necessarily care where it's conducted. I care that it is conducted. Mm. Um, so the fact that we have more corporate-based research is good because there's really two forms of research. There's basic research and there's applied research. Academia tends to focus very much on basic research, trying to answer the question for the sake of knowing the answer to gain knowledge. It doesn't necessarily apply what is learned, and that's where applied research comes in. Applied research wouldn't exist if someone had never asked the question at a basic research level. So applied research relies on basic research in order to take what is known and do something with it. So I see that the academia labs still have a point in terms of needing to gain knowledge for humanity simply to answer questions. Um, and the corporate are obviously going to be focused on applied because they're looking to make money and applying right. technology and research is how you're going to make money. Uh, so I see a lot of 
collaborations actually that occur between academic researchers and corporate researchers. Um, so I've been trying to get to the COVID lake <laughs> thing for a while. Uh, so the thing I found was really interesting was the C3 AI COVID-19 data lake. So the COVID data lake started as a collaboration between a bunch of different academic institutions. There was MIT, there was Princeton, University of Illinois. I can't remember mm -hmm. them all. But the idea was that these academic researchers wanted to answer basic research questions regarding COVID-19 to help with the right. pandemic. So they were trying to pull resources together into a huge repository. Well, that caught the attention of corporate people like Microsoft and Amazon Web Service and C3AI. And then they started getting involved in trying to make this a public repository that is free for everybody, not just the people at certain academic institutions, but you know, the little mm -hmm. people like me. And so um, I really needed that corporate investment in order to help my little bioinformatics lab get data that we could then use and work with. So, you know, there's that. There's also out of the COVID data lake, a challenge that came out of it. So that was sponsored by the corporate partners, particularly C3AI. And there they awarded some academics, what was it, $200,000 to advance their bioinformatic research um, that uses their COVID lake repository. So I think that if academics work with the corporate labs and vice versa, that both of them can coexist and mutually benefit in right. this world. And uh, yeah, from how you are putting it, it's, it looks like more of a relay, like one needs the other, in fact, right? Like acad academia puts down, you know, paves the way for basic research. That basic research is taken by the corporate world, of course, has a you know a different objective which is of course monetizing or generating revenue out of it or building products out of it right uh you know products that, that are usable right. by 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 the community or by you know a global population and and that's how innovation should yeah. go right In yeah and one thing to keep in mind is that no one wants to fund basic research it's easy to throw money at something when you know there's going to be a product therapy or what have you. But if you're just asking a basic question, you know, I don't want to pay money to know why the sky is blue. Tell me what I can do with it. But if things like the National Science Foundation or the National Institute of Health or corporate sponsors, like we saw with the COVID lake, aren't reinvesting in basic science, then they effectively cut themselves at the knee because they need that pipeline of just answering basic questions to generate the ideas for future products. Right. I cannot agree more indeed. Well, Laura, this was a very interesting conversation. I'm pretty sure that the followers of this show are going to enjoy as much as I did uh, interviewing you or well, <laughs> that's a big word. I mean, we just had a, we just had a chat today. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the invitation to be here. Yeah, likewise. It was great to have you here. And uh, I'll talk to you next time. Sounds great. Look forward to it. 
You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.